Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hello, and welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, the podcast dedicated to helping you take your recordings to the next level and be a rock star of the recording studio yourself. My guest on the show today is Graham Cochran, a self-described musician and mix engineer. Graham has built a very successful career recording and releasing both his own records and mixing for clients in many different genres. He's also the creator of the RecordingRevolution.com, a fantastic resource where you can go to learn tons about recording. You'll find blog articles, YouTube videos, and podcasts all absolutely free. And when you're truly ready to invest in yourself and your recordings, you can also check out the in-depth training courses that Graham offers there. He's created complete video courses called the Rethink Series to take you through different aspects of recording and mixing. You'll also find the Audio Income Project to help you get started building the business side of your recording career. And when you're ready to join an awesome community of peers, you can check out Dueling Mixes. It's a membership site that Graham created with Joe Gilder, another fantastic audio blogger, for in-depth training, access to monthly mixes, and multi-track recordings for practice and building your own resume. Graham is definitely a rock star of the recording studio, and I'm honored to have you here as our guest today. Graham, welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. Are you ready to rock? Liz, I am always ready to rock. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Man, it's my pleasure. I'm really, truly honored to have you on the show. I feel like you are a superstar of the recording world and certainly a superstar of the online audio blogging world. It's so funny. Like I, I don't feel like a superstar in either of those places. It's just been a very exciting last few years. And so things have just kind of picked up and I just find myself in the middle of this crazy industry, meeting a lot of cool people like you and excited about what kind of resources exist out there now that weren't there when, when you and I were probably learning how to record. Yeah, indeed. And the stuff, you know, that you're creating, the videos, the blog posts, just the quality of it is so strong. You know, you're very something I've noticed about you is you're very, very focused on delivering solid and thorough content and making sure that you're you're never straying from the path. You know, you're just you're really teaching essential stuff to your audience. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's kind of my driving force is I want to be uh, the best, if not one of the best, uh, free resources on the planet for home recording and mixing. And uh, I don't really want to get off track on much of anything else. And so I, I know who my audience is. And not everyone is my audience. Some people don't like it. But the people that do, I want to serve them as well as I can every single week. And, and it's, a, it's a real fulfilling experiment. It started as an experiment, but it's been a real fulfilling journey. Well, right on. Um, well, I, I won't go down this path, but I'm actually reading a book right now called Essentialism, which is, uh, you know, really dives into the topic of keeping your focus and knowing knowing what your goals are. And that's something that I feel like I can really appreciate about you. So I've done my best to introduce you to our audience, our rock stars. Um, can you tell us about yourself and how you got started? You know, where you come from, your background? Absolutely, man. I think I'm a lot like my audience. I'm a musician first had, you know, abandoned middle school, high school, we wanted to record ourselves and there was studios we could book and money was tight. So we counted up how many hours we could afford in a studio and it wasn't going to be enough to do the record the way we wanted to do it. And so we chose the home record recording route, which was, this was in the early nineties. Uh, and we were a bunch of kids. There weren't a lot of options. So we bought, you know, a Korg, uh, eight track hard disk recorder. We pitched our money in together. Instead of going to the studio, we bought the eight track. And uh, that thing was like so hard to figure out. It was like it was like another machine I had to figure out. Nobody wanted to read the manual. <laughs> it wasn't very, you know, music centered. It was like you had to be a scientist to figure this thing out. And so I just I finally picked up the manual to read it because all I wanted to do is figure out what do I need to do to get my stuff recorded. And um, started playing with that, and that was when I was introduced to what multi-track recording really is. I had no idea how records were made. I just thought bands got together. There was like one microphone in front of them, and somehow it all happened. And that's the way it used to be done, but I had yeah. no clue what was possible, I guess. And that just ignited a passion for recording that evolved into uh, you know, me getting every catalog I could find, every Sound on Sound magazine I could find, um, eventually going to college to study audio engineering 
and uh, and becoming a freelance engineer and just going down this crazy path. That's a great story. You know, that's definitely similar to mine. I think it's probably similar to a lot of people's. Um, when you started with the Korg 8-track, you know, we had already entered the digital age. When I started recording, it was still a cassette 4-track, mm-hmm. one of the Fostex guys. Yeah. Um, but just that process of starting out on something simple and, you know, so basic. Well, I say simple, but as you pointed out, it wasn't that simple. It wasn't right. simple enough. Um, but I remember when I started this, the, the, I felt like the definition of engineering and what defined me as somebody who was kind of good at that is I knew how to go down to Radio Shack and, and get a collection of adapters so I could fit <laughs> this cable into that input and connect it all, you know, make it work. Oh, yeah, uh, dude. So, um, well, hey, I, like to, I really like to ask for um, an inspirational quote from our guests. Um, and I wondered if you might have anything you'd like to share, something that uh, is pretty inspiring for making music or recording. Oh, absolutely. I was thinking about this. Um, I, I wrote a, a post about this a, year, a couple of years ago because it, um, it was a quote I wish I had heard even earlier, but it's a famous quote by Ira Glass. Uh, he, he did his program on National Public Radio, NPR, and he's talking about um, the frustration that so many creatives have. And if you're a musician, you're a creative. If you're writing songs or you're recording a record, you're frustrated at the beginning, and I'll, I pulled it up because it's so great word for word. So I'd love to just read it and uh, yeah, please let, do let the audience take it as it is. But in Ira's words, he says, "Nobody tells this to people who are beginners. I wish someone told me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste, but there is this gap. For the first couple of years, you make stuff; it's just not that good." It's trying to be good. It has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase. They quit. Most people I know who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have this special thing that we want it to have. And if you're just starting out or you're still in that phase, you got to know it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is a lot of work. It is only by going through a volume of work that you will close the gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's so true. It's so to the point. Um, And it reminds me of the frustrations I've had many times, you know, going from where you start and you, you just are passionate about music. You've got favorite bands. You've got records that you just sit around listening to. And then, you know, one day you dive into the recording end of it and you start digging in and learning how to do stuff. And, you know, you probably initially, if you're a band, um, you know, if you're a musician, maybe the first experience you have is just that initial excitement at hearing yourself recorded and played back. And that that can be a big motivator, but it probably isn't too long after that that you start to feel a real sense of frustration with things that you're not doing right, you know, that don't match up to the stuff that really inspires you at the beginning. So um, I, I, I see that connection and how that really applies to music and recording. Well, that's, that's a huge part of what I, what I kind of preach in, in all my content is that I think the natural progression for musician-turned-engineers is you, know, you, you get excited because you get some recording equipment and we are blessed to live in an era where recording equipment is super cheap and accessible. So that's the first check in the box is that everybody has a home studio and that wasn't possible 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then you get it up and running and you've got great songs, hopefully, and uh, you start recording and you realize your stuff sounds horrible. And so you don't know why. And sometimes you think it's maybe it's the mixing and then you start to go down this rabbit trail of, is it that my... My gear isn't good enough, so you start to buy more expensive gear, or you don't have enough plugins or the right kind of plugins. And you get on internet forums, and there's a myriad of opinions that, that just lead you down deep, dark, depressing holes of pulling out your wallet and buying more stuff, or just um, focusing on the wrong things. And so I feel like what so many people do is they either give up or they try to buy their way out of their frustration when it's just that they're not good at recording yet. And it's something mm-hmm. that literally just takes a lot of time. But the, I find it encouraging because you don't have to be a genius to do this. I'm not that very technical of a person. I don't feel like the term audio engineer is a fair term for a person like me. Uh, you know, maybe put, take the word engineer out and put um, experimenter. I'm an audio experimenter. Yeah. You know, 
<laughs> but uh, I'm just pushing buttons until stuff sounds good, just like with a guitar amp. Just turn the knobs until it sounds good. And um, over time, you get really smart about what sounds good and what doesn't sound good. And that's what I love about Ira's quote is if, if you quit early on, you'll never see how good you could get at this thing. And I know it sounds kind of uh, cliche that, that don't quit, but with audio recording and mixing, that is the secret is finish a large body of work and you will, you will inevitably get better. That's great. I love that. Finish a large body of work and you will inevitably get better. So, hey, I'm going to quote you for just a second, because uh, this applies to that too. Um, and this is from your website. You said, if I only had this preamp, if if I could only upgrade my DAW, my DAW, if I only had a better room or acoustic treatment. Now, you already have all you need to get killer sounding tracks. You just need a new way of thinking. And that is, you know, parallel to this concept of just get in there and realize that what you need is you just need to work on your own craft. You need to work on yourself and, and what you can contribute to a recording or to your creation because it's through that process of creating the larger body of work that you begin to understand w- where your talents are and what you have to offer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm all about is, is uh, trying to be a voice of reason in a confusing, crowded environment that screams um, the reason why you're not your recordings aren't satisfying you is your converters or your preamps or switch DAWs or get some third-party plugins. And I'm not against any any purchase unless that purchase is made uh, with money that you don't have, aka you slap down your credit card, and it's that purchase is made out of fear or mis- misleading information. That that is the reason why you're not good. And it's 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 like we almost um, we almost want to be told that we're one purchase away from better recordings. It's almost yeah. easier to swallow that pill than it is to be told, you're just probably a solid year away from half-decent recordings and a few years away from the kind of recordings you really want to get good at. But you don't need to buy anything new. You just need to do a lot of it. And uh, we, we're not very patient. So, But that's, that's well, my message. Well, you're probably familiar with the concept of the 10,000-hour theory. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the idea of 10,000 hours to mastery. And I don't think anybody's ever suggested that you needed, you were just 10,000 products away from mastery. <laughs> you know? But it certainly feels that way sometimes. Yeah. Well, so um, I wanted to ask you uh, to, to share with us uh, something on your journey in recording that has felt like a failure or a, or a setback for you. You know, I like to find inspiring stories for our listeners, for the rock stars to hear from you, you know, stuff that's been frustrating for you in the past, but maybe became a real learning experience? Oh, man. I've, I've had a, a lot of frustrating experiences because I feel like I, I, I'm, I'm guessing at a lot of what I do. So there can be failures in actually recording and mixing. Like I feel like I've done projects where I try to do as best of a, a job as I could for a client. Um, and then I've had a client. Like I, I, I did a mastering gig for a, a guy and I've, he, I always take a deposit to start the work, but he paid me all up front and uh, it was pretty rare. He said, no, I'm going to pay you up front. That's fine. And I did the work and I delivered it to him. And, uh, and I always offer an opportunity for at least one revision on mastering. If there's anything he doesn't like, you know, or I never heard back from this guy. Um, and I was so confused. I was like, well, I guess he'd already paid me. And I guess since I didn't hear from him, he's happy. And I guess he just took the, the masters and went. So I was fine. He was fine until a month later, uh, I get a, a message from him saying, hey, man, uh, just so you know, I, I never liked your mastering job. I hired somebody else to remaster it, and uh, I kind of would like my money back. Oh, man. I was like, this is like a month later. I, I, never, I, I contacted you. You never responded. You never gave me a chance to like do – I could have remastered it for you. You could have told me what you didn't like, or you never communicated with me. And I was, I was frustrated that I wasn't given the opportunity to, to make it right. You know, that's a huge mm-hmm. part of uh, any service oriented business is, um, and so, uh, and so I felt like, man, I've done the work and then he never told me it wasn't good until a month later. And it's, it's his fault for hiring another guy without giving me a chance to do it right. So I, I had, you know, I swallowed my pride and, and refunded his money because I never want to take someone's money if they're not happy with whatever product or service I offer. Cause that to me right. is theft. But, uh, I, so I lost money and time and my pride took a hit because I didn't get even an opportunity to improve upon my lack of delivering what he wanted. So that, 
you know, that's just a small glimpse into any time you do service-oriented work. If you're recording or mixing bands, I don't know if anyone listening, if they're doing that for other people, that becomes a whole other ballgame when you're not the client anymore. And so it's not just, oh, if I don't like my own mix, I can, I can redo it. Right. Uh, it's scary to put that your work out there. And sometimes your clients love it, and sometimes they go, I don't like what you did. And so you take it personally, and it's hard for me to separate out the, uh, the, the client work from their having a personal opinion of you as a human being. Well, and dealing with clients too, that process of revising and, and improving the service that you're providing, it, it can be a really tricky balancing act to try and find that just right balance where, you know, sometimes you learn that a client really wants you to just jump in and, and put your heart into it and give it your all. And sometimes your client wants you to kind of take it a little, a step and then let them respond to it and then take it another step and let them respond to it. And, you know, figuring out that balance as you go is I think something that varies client to client and something that we all just learn through practice and creating that larger body of work like you described. Absolutely. And I'll give you another failure too. I, I um, have always been recording and mixing bands on the side for years, like starting in college. So my, my dorm room, the freshman year, I was, I had like a little two-channel audio interface and a laptop with Pro Tools on it. And I thought I had a home studio and I was like, I can, I can record anything. So I had a lot of naivety, which was great because I just went out there and told everyone, you know, I'll record your demos, I'll record your albums, I'll record your recitals, whatever. Yeah. And you and you and Rick Rubin, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the only thing that it's, we have in common. Probably, I don't have a sweet beard or uh, or all the the acclaim that he has. I love his work, but but I remember, you know, always recording bands since I was in my late teens on the side, and then even when I got out of school, every like nights and weekends, I had bands over in my apartment, and my wife was really kind to let us have people in, and we'd record them and. But one day, I, I was like, I hate my job. I want to do this full-time. I'm ready to do this full-time. So I, I went full-time the first time, and it just six months after going full-time with freelance recording and mixing, I got too scared, and I backed out. I had so many clients you know, change schedule on me, or they, they had to delay their project, and I only had a deposit, or I didn't have a deposit. And just the lack of certainty about a paycheck was a scary reality for me and my new wife. And uh, I didn't have the entrepreneurial gut to stay, stay in, the, in there and, and do it. So I quit being a full-time freelancer at the first time and, and went and got a, a day audio job doing sound design and, and stuff for a, a software company. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, so I, now, now I'm full-time freelance and stuff with the recording revolution. But the first time I thought, yeah, now I'm ready to step out and do it. And I just I didn't have the guts to do it. So it is, that was a scary failure at first. And I thought, man, I'm just never cut out to do this. But, uh, but now I've been, I've been freelance for full-time for six, seven years now. So the second time it worked out. So if, it don't, if you don't get it the first time, it, it may not be that's your only shot. Yeah, exactly. So I was going to ask you what you know, these couple of failures you talked about the learning experience was. And it sounds like it's that you know, if, if you fall off that horse, just get up and try again. And eventually you will get it. You know, it's through trial and error. It's through practice that we get better at the things we do. Yeah, I mean, life isn't as linear and as clear cut as I my personality wants it to be. You know, I'm, I make sweeping generalizations. Like, if I don't do well at something, it's like, oh, I'm never going to be good at that. That's the way my mind goes. You know, uh, and then at the same time, I feel like I have maybe it was maybe it was taught to me in school, or maybe I just made this up. But I viewed life as a straight path, and and there's this one perfect path. And I, I'm if I make a mistake, I've ruined my life, and I've gotten off the path. And um, it, there's so much pressure I put on myself to. If I take this job, is that going to lead to the next job or is that going to lead to this gig or I'm getting closer to my goals or am I not as if it's a straight line and life's turning out to be a lot messier than I thought it was and a lot more vague and so that's sort of the lesson I'm learning, still learning now, Liz, is that um, experience is very valuable even if it's a failure. Um, You can learn a lot from every experience and so it's the courage to uh, continue to apply what you're learning and try new things and not make sweeping generalizations about your entire life history, yeah. you know, course of your life uh, after one experience. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I want to say it's generous of you to be so transparent with that too, um, as you're, as part of your teaching process, you know, uh, I imagine it can also be, um, tempting or confusing sometimes when you're trying to convey a message to people you're teaching to, think that you're supposed to be showing them, yeah, if you just do this, you're going to, you're going to just make it straight to the top, you know, in one straight line. 
And you're so it's you're so right. It's so true that it's not a straight line. It takes a lot of trial and error. And there are a lot of times where you feel like you have just so severely screwed up this time that there's no way you're going to recover. And yet at the same time, you go through that process and eventually you do recover. And if you just keep, you know, pushing forward, pushing forward and moving towards, you know, what your, your goals and aspirations are and your passion, you're going to, you're going to arrive somewhere that when you look back from it, you're going to think, wow, I can't believe I got here. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so tell us um, on that note, on that big lofty note, tell us a little bit about uh, a time that felt like a real success moment for you, a time where you did look back and you, you saw the path laid out behind you and you, and you said, wow, this really does work. Oh man, I've, I've, I've been blessed to have a lot of those lately. Um, what I'm doing with the recording revolution was never in the cards for me. It was never a dream for me or a goal. And I don't want anyone to think that I had this great master plan to start something and, um, like I had no plan whatsoever. And so the last few years where the recording revolution, and I'm sure it's, it's new for a lot of your listeners too. And I don't assume that everyone knows about it. I, I still think it's just my mom and my brother, and my wife that know that my website exists, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's grown to a point where I have more reach than I ever thought was possible. And I don't realize the type of people or the amount of people that have, uh, enjoyed or had checked out the resource and it's helped them in some way. And in the last couple of years, a, a, a lot of my uh, my mentors and people that I respect in the industry and other industries as well um, have been able to sort of get in touch with me and we've been able to talk and or meet and I've just been able to be blown away by working with some of them and connecting with some of them. Re- recently, I was able to be on Dave Pensado's show, Pensado's Place. Yep. Uh, this, Golf clap right here, oh. everyone. <laughs> That's an awesome, awesome show. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a great show. I mean, that's a resource that I've been watching for years, and and always, I've always appreciated Dave's um, humility and transparency as someone at his level of the game. There's not too many of them that uh, want to to be generous with teaching and content and look back to the next generation and openly say, "Hey, this works and this doesn't," or "I don't know what I'm doing here," or "This has really helped me." And so I've always uh, appreciated that from a distance, and then I learn a lot from his show and all the guests that he has on. And so this summer, being able to be invited to be on the show as a guest, I was even trying to tell him when I was there on the show, I was like, this just doesn't even seem right. I don't really belong to be, <laughs> deserve to be back here, but it's kind of crazy that I, I watched this show, and now I'm sitting at this desk with you guys. So it's a humbling experience to see that a, a simple little blog where I felt like um, I, I'm not... I have no credentials to teach this to you other than the fact that this is how I see the world of audio and I'll put it out into the abyss and it's turned into the thing that it is today. It's just kind of crazy. That's great, man. I love that. And then you did uh, recently, I was reading an article of yours where you did a wonderful comparison between, uh, you know, a very respectful comparison between your style of mixing and Dave Pensado's. And you talk about um, what I think is a topic that's um, continuing on your site right now about, you know, the speed mixing or mixing quickly rather than slowly. W- would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, I was on the, sh- the show with Dave and he asked me, what is one thing that, uh, that, that I think that he and I are polar opposites on or that we teach very differently. And, you know, we're very different people, you know, other than the fact that he has Grammys and I don't. <laughs> uh, but the one thing I, I thought of on the set was that, well, Dave is always talking about how slow it takes him to mix. Now he's not advocating people mix as slow as possible, but he seems to lament the fact that he takes a day or two or whatever to get a mix done. And uh, I, don't, I told him on the show that I don't think he has anything to worry about. I think what he's doing is clearly working. Um, but for me, it's funny because if I take more time in a mix uh, and I slow down or I, I add, I come back the next day and keep mixing, my mixes only get worse. Mm-hmm. And I find myself you know, at best, they only get different, you know, they're not getting any better. Let's just say that. And a lot of times they get worse. I start to undo a lot of what, um, what even Dave himself has said is, you know, you only hear a mix for the first time once, especially if it's coming from a client, you only hear a mix for the first time once. It's that first time you pull up the faders or even your own music and you haven't listened to it in a while, you recorded it and now you want to mix it. You pull up the faders, the way you initially hear the, that guitar and that drum and that vocal and that keyboard part, man, that moment is so valuable because that's the, your first gut thought of where things should go and how things should sound. 
and I, I've been trying to learn to trust my gut instincts on a, on levels and pan and vibe in the early stage, the first thirty minutes to an hour, and then try my hardest not to screw that up as I finish out the mix. And so I talk about mixing fast a lot, and it's a conversation I've been had going on for years as a a tool that helps me get better mixes because that's my problem is mixing slow hurts me. But it's an interesting discussion because a lot of people. Um, they get frustrated with that as if I'm advocating people turn out uh, worse mixes. But it's something um, something called Parkinson's Law, and I, I first heard about this yeah. through Tim Ferriss and his amazing work, The 4-Hour Workweek. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about Parkinson's Law, you know, the, the, the simple fact that the perceived importance or magnitude of a task will swell uh, right. to the amount of time you give it. And, and the classic example is if you're in school and you have a term paper due in, in a month, you're like, gosh, I got a month to write this paper. It becomes a big deal in your mind, yeah. you know, because it's like a month long paper. And so you either procrastinate like I would do, or you research like crazy. But either way, you have a whole month, you'll take a whole month, and you'll be stressed out that whole month. But if your teacher said, term paper's due on my desk tomorrow by five, you would have, you would be, you know, scrambling. But somehow you would find a way to crush that paper into oblivion and turn it in within 24 hours, and the stats would show that you would deliver a paper that is at least as good of the, as the month paper, if not better, because of a thing called focus. And so Tim Ferriss talks about harnessing the power of a short deadline or an immediate deadline to help you get better work done in less time, and I just do that with my own mixes. Yeah, I th- I can think of so many examples. I probably shouldn't go into them all, but um, I, it's very true. It's very true that you know when you have a deadline that's happening right around the corner, you sort of have no choice but to simply hunker down and get to work on it, and you and you're just going to do it, you know. And if you have a deadline that's a month from now, um, you'll take a month to worry about it, and then you'll have to hunker down one of these days, you know. But with mixing. One of the things that's interesting to me about that topic is that whether you give yourself an hour to mix a song or a week to mix a song, inspiration only ever happens in the moment. And so that, you know, the moment of inspiration, when it happens and you react to it, it comes and goes sort of instantaneously. And so if you're going to take a day to mix a song, you're probably... I mean, there's no way you're going to just listen to a song over and over for eight hours, 12 hours, and it's somehow going to, you're going to get more and more inspired um, or get more excited about it. But what you can do is you can repeat the process of, of inspiration over and over again and probably just work on all these parts of a mix that you feel like you might need to do that take a little time to get through. Um, I don't know exactly what sort of details Dave really likes to work on on his mixes that might be a day long. But I I do know that for myself, when I'm mixing a song, um, I could take hours to prepare a song and get it ready for the mix. But ultimately, when I sit down to mix it, I want the actual process of inspiration to be, you know, at the pace, at the speed of music. So I really, you know, I want to sit down and, and really sort of mix it in the moment when it's when it's happening and when I'm hearing it. So I totally, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So how are you, can you tell us a little bit more about your, your process of mixing and how does, how does it work for you to, uh, to mix quickly? Yeah, well, that's, that's kind of what I wanted to touch on here, Liz, is that the, one of the reasons why I like to mix quickly and I advocate mixing quick as something to experiment with is, uh, if I have less time to do something, let's just say do 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 a mix. It's not that I just can simply do all the things in a mix faster you know, like grab a reverb faster and tweak the knob faster. It's not just about speeding up what you do. It, it, it invariably means I have to let go of certain things and I, I can do fewer things and only focus on certain things. And what that does is it kind of implements uh, Pareto's principle, which is the 80-20 rule of, you know, there's probably 20% of the things you do in a mix out of all the things you could do in a given mix, probably 20% of those things are what actually give you 80% of the sound of your mix Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very profound thing for younger mixers in, in not just in age, but in their experience to understand is what are the things in a mix that really uh, define the sound of the mix. There's things that can make a little bit of a difference that are really nice and sweet, but they may not be a big win. So I really try to encourage people to focus on things like 
your initial volume balance. You know, if you just pull up the faders, I spend a lot of time at the beginning of my mixes just mixing with just a, va- a fader and a pan pot if, and pretending like there's no plugins. Like, well, how can I make that bass sound fat? You can turn it up, you know, uh, and just sort of play mm-hmm. with the faders and get them at a right spot because that'll determine a lot about the rest of the mix. So often we pull up faders and go, that sounds okay. Now let's grab some plugins. And instead, I'd rather people spend more time getting the faders perfect, that means close as perfect as you can without any automation, and set an ideal pan position, let's say. And then move on to what I think are the two big wins after that, which are EQ and compression. What are you doing with your EQ? Because that will change your mix for better or for worse. That will clean up a bad mix or that will give you clarity with a dense layer of guitars. And, and compression will give you that nice contained gain it'll give you punch and fatness where you want it or energy where you want that and um, if you can get your eq and your compression right you've got 85 percent of your song right there without even any dynamics i mean any effects or ambient effects or anything and um instead of focusing on how to what's the perfect delay tone or that perfect saturation plug-in or um the perfect automation move i love big wins you know liz you just did a video on a uh, master bus plugins mm-hmm and uh, I love putting stuff on the, the mix bus, the master bus early on because you can get a, one EQ move, a dB and a half on a, on a mix bus can make a huge impact on your whole mix very quickly. Um, and again, so I like quick, big moves. And so right now, um, as of when we're talking, I'm doing a, a, a little series on YouTube called The One Hour Mix where I'm just mixing a song that I did for a client four or five years ago. I'm pulling it right back up and remixing it from scratch in one hour with stock plugins. Um, not because that's how I would want to mix for a client. I, I can't get a mix done in an hour very well. But yeah. um, if I had to, what would it look like? What would it ha- what would happen? So I'm giving myself 10-minute chunks. Um, and it's purely an exercise to get people to think about the big wins in mixing. And I'd rather you spend more time there than like getting the perfect EQ on a hi-hat track. Right. Well, if you get the perfect EQ on a hi-hat track, then ultimately you have a mix with a perfect hi-hat track. <laughs> but it might not have anything else included yeah, in it. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, that's cool. You know, I, I'm just finishing a record now. In fact, the the uh, release party for it is coming up this week. And for me, it was an example of a record that I did where we had time constraints to it. And so my only option was to what I at the time I thought were going to be, you know, just kind of careful rough mixes. So we, we, um, you know, I got to the end of the session and I just threw headphones on to kind of block out what was going on in the control room. And I just jumped through and I did the simplest, simplest balancing and mixing of this stuff that I could. Maybe it was like half an hour or a song maybe. And, um, and I was really just going for the energy. Well, this record turned out to be one of my favorite records that I've done in years. I'm really excited about it. And what I found is that sometimes you can start out doing a fast mix and then just put it away and then come back to it later and just make, you know, have your thought process of listening to it and come back with the client and make some changes to it and add the things that were missing. Mm-hmm. But if I had spent all day working on that mix, I have a suspicion it wouldn't have been as good as it turned out to be. Oh, that's huge. I mean, because you, like you said earlier about the inspiration in that moment, right after a session, you are responding to what's so fresh on your mind. And you're just, it's a very quick process because it's, very clear what you need to do. You know, here's the snare, here's that guitar, pan it here, turn it up here, get that vibe, the vocal is the hook here, or you're not overthinking it. And that's what that's that's what's so valuable to these young mixers who well, let's just say it this way, and my way is not the only way for sure. There are there are people that are maybe more technical minded than me. And so either they want a resource that is more technical minded or they teach uh, mixing as if it's a, a a technical endeavor, a science, or a, you know a formula, and I just don't think about mixing that way. And I don't think that's anything wrong with that approach. But I don't think it's a science. And I see a lot of people getting bogged down in the science, like what's the the correct yeah. EQ curve for a kick drum, or right. what about you know you know phase shift with an EQ. And it's like, well, there are legitimate problems, and there is a science underneath it. But be a musician, think like a musician, think about it like a listener. Where do you want stuff to be? A lot of times mixes are bad because the vocal is just too quiet or it's too muddy. And you can fix that with some simple EQ and you're not even applying your scientific mind to it. It's just what sounds bad, cut it out. What sounds good, enhance it a little bit. And um, I want to help people think about mixing music and recording music from a musician's standpoint because ultimately we're creating art. We're not creating a science experiment. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think the the appropriate answer when somebody asks for what the secret formula is to getting a kick drum to sound just right is to ask them, what's the secret formula for determining whether or not they're going to like a record or not? Yeah. You know, because there isn't one. It comes from emotion and it comes from the energy and the experience and ultimately great creations in the recording studio have those same qualities. There are a lot of things that you can begin to identify as you spend more and more time listening and recording and working on things. And um, I think one of the beautiful things about what we do as as an art form too, is that um, while you may approach recording one way and Dave Pensato might record it another way, I might record it another way, um, they're not mutually exclusive. So somebody else comes along and they pay attention to what you're teaching and they don't have to simply uh, you know, adopt everything and make that their style. They, they bring their own style and, and, and appreciation for the art form to it. And they can learn things from you in the way that you're teaching them that they can apply to their own work and it will help them have a, you know, expanded vocabulary of how to work on music and how to work on their own music or work on music for clients. And yet they can still go and learn elsewhere and learn elsewhere. I mean, we all do that. We learn from so many different places. And that's the beauty of it is is that there's just so much opportunity out there to take away this tip from here and and this, um, you know, coursework from over here. Um, So it's pretty exciting. Oh, it's super exciting. We live in an amazing time for music makers because not just the tools have come. I mean, that's why I named my site The Recording Revolution because it is a revolutionary period we're living in where the barrier of entry for quality professional recording equipment and mixing equipment has just plummeted to the bottom that anybody can have a great studio now. Cost is no longer the issue, which allows talent and hard work to rise to the top. Um, And then the same is true for education. Because of the internet, there's a lot of bad education out there, but there's access to a lot of good education, a lot of resources like this podcast, um, everything that you're doing. There's a whole crew of us doing audio stuff. We've all kind of become friends over the years because we're serving a very similar space. You, know, you mentioned Joe Gilder. He's one of my mm-hmm. partners. We do dueling mixes together. Um, there's so many of these guys out there. And uh, none of this existed when I was starting out to learn. And so it's just like um, you know, I, I run businesses, and so I've had to learn how to do business. I didn't go to school for business. And so I don't just read one book about business from one author. You know, I, I read a ton. I have so many authors that I've learned from. And like you said, I pick up pieces here and there. And ultimately, I'm not any one of those authors that I've studied under or people that I've learned from in person, I am uniquely me and I have my own way of viewing things and I have to learn from people that are smarter than me and and mix it all together. It's the same with audio. It's such a subjective, wonderful space to be in that it's actually super exciting to learn from a lot of places. Well, I imagine that must be one of the things that is beneficial about joining Dueling Mixes, for example, is um, you surround yourself with other peers that you can learn from and from both you and Joe, two different styles of mixing and different approaches. And, And it just immerses a student in this environment that allows them to learn from many different directions all at once. Yeah, I mean, that was the concept behind Dually Mixes was how Joe and I would mix a song totally differently. Like, he hears music so different than me. And, uh, and so we thought, what, where else, wouldn't it be cool if every month you could log in and listen to a brand new song and listen to how two guys mix the exact same multi-track files? You know, independently of each other and, and see how different a set of tracks can sound and go, oh, wow, you can almost hear the potential for better or for worse in one direction. One mix is fat and warm. One mix is bright and punchy. One mix, the drums are barely present. One mix, the kick drum is just dominating. One mix focused on a guitar loop. The other focused on the vocal. You go, you get a picture of what's possible and then um, they get to listen to other members in, inside the community because everyone's sharing their mixes as well. And so I think it gets people to develop, the goal is to get members to develop their own taste, actually decide what they like to hear in a mix. We actually encourage our members to critique our mixes and tell us what is good about Graham's mix and what's bad about it. Why do you, you know, in their own opinion, what do you not like about my mix? What do you like about it? And what do you not like about Joe's? Being mm-hmm. able to articulate that is, is helping them come from the mind of what's a guitar supposed to sound like to what do I like my guitars to sound like in this song? You know, it's a fun place. Well, and I'm just remembering what you talked about, about interacting with a client and having, getting feedback. Well, 
And in your case, you didn't get any feedback, <laughs> unfortunately. But ideally, you would get feedback from a client. And I imagine that a, a community like Dueling Mixes allows people to interact with each other. And it begins to give you that experience of getting feedback on something you do and responding to it, which is really a positive thing if you're going to work with clients in particular. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's the negative thing about our day and age is everyone can, can operate in isolation, you know, so we don't have a lot of real true community in the audio space in person a lot of times because the, the traditional studio internship process is, is slowly dying. And so what I used to benefit from by interning and working in a studio was hanging around 10 other people and picking their brain and sharing stories and tips and learning and watching people work. And so that a lot of us, I talk about like our our little audio caves, you know, we, we hide out in our little audio caves, our basements or our bedrooms working alone. And, um, dueling mixes mm-hmm. kind of brings us together virtually where we can share all work on the same music every month together and share our experiences for better or for worse and get encouragement and feedback and stuff. And it's, it's scary to share something and say, what do you think about this? And then get some criticism, yeah. but it's super valuable if you want to get better. Yeah, the community thing is is just awesome. And, uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because there's really a remarkable thing going on right here at the Toy Box studio right now. I have three interns who've just started their fall internship here, and uh, they are literally in the other room with earphones on taking show notes and listening to this interview as it goes down. So yes. there's, it's, you know, it is a rare opportunity to be able to be in a studio environment and be around other people in a community. And for anybody who's making music on their own or they're not in a music hub, you know, one of the Nashville, New York, Los Angeles here uh, in the U.S., um, what a great resource to be able to be in a community online. I mean, we spend so much time looking at at our computers and our, our phones anyway. Why not interact with people that we that really propel, propel us forward in our craft and in our creations? Oh, that's fantastic. It's fantastic that A, you have interns and that there's a place for that to still exist. And uh, I think my internship uh, in a major studio for me was one of the most valuable experiences, including discovering things that I hated and did not like. Um, And uh, that's kind of brought me to where I am today. So I'm actually grateful for some of those negative experiences. Again, experience is super valuable because it can never be taken away from you and you can um, process, digest, and learn a lot about yourself. And yeah, working with people for better or for worse has been super valuable over the years. Yep. You hear that rock stars, every ne- even every negative experience is a positive experience. Ultimately, if you can keep heading in the right direction. I mean, it sounds like one of those cheesy cat posters, you know, like, <laughs> like what they say that in the Lego movie, I know it sounds like yeah. a cat poster, believe, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, right. but it's, it's so true. It depends on how you view things. And I, I'm learning to I'm seeing in in retrospect how things that I thought were a waste of time have six years later proved more valuable or 10 years later have turned a corner or turned into something else. So you just never know what your experiences will turn into. Hi, I hope you're enjoying hearing from today's featured rock star. We are just about to head into the jam session and I want to let you know that all the cool stuff we talk about will all be available in the show notes for this episode. If you would like me to send it directly to you, all you need to do is text jam session to 33444 and I'll send you free content including the show notes. Again, that's jam session to 33444 and I'll send you free content including the show notes. Cheers. Yes, indeed. Well, um, Graham, I think we're getting close to wrapping up here and so I was hoping we could just leap into the final stretch here. It's what I like to call the jam session. Just a series of questions that you can give quick answers to or as quick as you feel like. Yeah. All right, great. Well, so I'll start at the beginning. What was holding you back at the beginning from getting started and recording? A fear that my recordings would not sound good. Okay. All right. And then um, what was some of the best advice you ever received about recording? Just put the mic where it sounds good. <laughs> Just put it where it sounds good and don't overthink it. Right on. Yeah, hopefully the the you know the the music that you want is coming out of the instrument in the first place. Yeah, there's nothing not much I can do about that if I'm not talented at my <laughs> instrument. I guess I get better. All right. So, um, what recording tip, hack, or secret sauce would you like to share from your experience? Oh man, um, 
Sorry, that's not a very quick question there. That's like a general one. No, it's okay. I'll give you two. It, I'll it give snuck you... into the jam session. Yeah, it's all right. You can, you're trying to keep me on my toes, and that's good. I'll give you a recording one and a mixing one. So a recording hack for me is um, use cardioid mics as often as possible in a home studio. Um, those are the mics that pick up sound on, on one front of it, not on the back, for the express purpose of using the back of the microphone to reject whatever sounds nasty in your room. So... It could be a computer fan noise. You know, if your computer's loud and you're in the same room as your computer, put the back of the microphone to your computer. Uh, if it's a mm-hmm. reflective surface that's just reflecting something nasty, aim the back of the mic to that or a window. A lot of times like, people think about where to place the mic and they never think about where to put the back of the mic if it's a cardioid polar pattern. And I use that a lot when the space isn't that great. So use mm-hmm. the back of your mic. And then uh, for mixing, one of my all-time favorite things that I never did. I was taught it in college and I ignored the advice for years is to do a lot of mixing in mono. Flip your whole mix to mono and and then choose your EQ curves and your compression de- uh, decisions. It is really hard to do because it's hard to hear, but it forces you to get clarity and punch when everything's coming out in one speaker and then when you pop it back into stereo, it sounds killer. Yeah, you know, I'll follow that up by saying a couple of things. One is if you listen to any music at all ever out of the speaker of your iPhone, you're hearing mono. It's doing exactly that. It's summing all those sounds together and letting you hear them compiled together in in one output of one speaker. And then another is when you are mixing in stereo and you've got your stereo speakers, um, you know, if if you're ever asking yourself why mono, be aware that what comes out of the left speaker is a little, it's treated differently by the room on the left side than what comes out of the right speaker. The room is responding to that speaker differently. So sometimes you don't really know what, how it all adds up until you sum it to mono and hear it out of one speaker. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, can you recommend a favorite book, something that you've been reading recently you're excited about? On audio? Sure. Audio, recording, or maybe even the business side of it, if you, if you like. Yeah, I'll tell you what, um, two fantastic mixing books. One is uh, Zen and the Art of Mixing by Mixer Man. Um, And although he and I disagree (laughs) very vehemently on a few main issues, uh, I I can't recommend his book enough. The the whole book, except for the one one chapter about analog summing uh, that I feel like doesn't even really fit in his book, uh, is the whole book is fantastic. And he approaches mixing from a a musician standpoint, and he gets it. He puts into words what I'm trying to put into words so often. So Zen and the Art of Mixing is a wonderful read. And then uh, Mike Sr., who contributes to Sound on Sound magazine, has a great book called Mixing Secrets for the Small Studio. And it's very much more technical than I am. He's a genius, and I'm not really that smart. So a lot of times I'm having to read it two or three times to understand what he's talking about. But if you do what he says, your mixes will sound a lot, lot better. Uh, So those two books for mixing... And then one of my favorite business books of all time has become The Go-Giver by oh, Bob yeah. Berg. It's a quick little read. It's a book about generosity, honestly. And um, it's, it's so true. And it lines up with how I've tried to run the recording revolution and my freelance business. And I read it two years ago and felt like finally someone put into words uh, what I believe to be true all along. And I got so many insights from it. And it's a fantastic quick little read, The Go-Giver. Yeah, I just got that one. I haven't read it yet. And I'm trying to remember, I may have even heard about that from you or possibly from Pat Flynn, who, for our audience, he's a great blogger, not to do with audio, but um, great guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Zen and the Art of Mixing, fantastic book by Mixer Man. I love that one. I I devoured that book. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Okay, so um, now can you share a favorite hardware tool that you're enjoying in the studio? It could be anything from a tuner to a mic or some piece of gear. Oh man! So the the honest truth is, I love my new desk <laughs> that I bought um, from right RC. I had a, a, a custom desk built, and I think it's actually the most expensive piece of gear in my studio. And it literally does nothing for the audio in my studio. <laughs> it's literally just a desk. Uh, well, but well, it keeps the audio up off the ground. Right? It does, and it hides the cables, and it has a nice uh, little leather armrest, and it makes me feel very special and important. No, but in all seriousness, um, I, I do love that, and I um, I'm loving. A bunch of microphones that I've had for a few years that are I can't you can't get anymore that Kell Audio used to make a little manufacturer in Canada. Um, they were like the HM1 and the HM2D. They're these little microphones that just sound so cool, and I use them all the time in the studio. And if you can find them on eBay, K E L Kell Audio, they're they're super cheap mics and they sound super super good. I love them. 
Okay, groovy. I, I have not worked with those, but I look forward to checking them out. Um, now, how about a favorite software tool for recording, whether it's a plugin, a DAW? You know, I love Slate Digital's plugins. Stephen Slate, um, I, I don't really buy many third-party plugins, but I think I own every single plugin he's ever made. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm a huge fan of, actually, a free plugin is Revival. And he, he includes that now. If you download his virtual mix rack demo, you don't even have to buy the plugin, but if you download the virtual mix rack demo, you get a free saturation harmonic exciter plugin called Revival. and has two knobs on it. I love things that are simple. It's called Shimmer and thickness, and you can literally add more shimmer to your mix, or more <laughs> thickness, or you can do it to a good... I literally turned an acoustic guitar that was recorded with an SM57 and cranked the shimmer and the thickness all the way up, and then it sounded like it was mic'd through a condenser. It had more clarity, more detail, more body. I really don't understand what is happening in that plugin, but it's free, and it's one of my favorite plugins that he makes. It's crazy. It's the awesome knob. Yeah, it's basically what you're looking for. It's an awesome knob. Do you remember um, in those the cartoon series The Far Side? Have you ever oh, seen yeah. that, oh, yeah. that cartoon? Gary Larson. He's yeah, he's mixing and he's got the the suck knob on the on the mixer and the bands up on stage. Oh yeah, he's about <laughs> to grab it. Yep. Yeah, so this would be the opposite of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, groovy. Um, all right, so uh, next one. Can you share a great resource for the business side of the recording studio, whether it's a technique um, or a person or some um, you know online app application that has helped you out? Just something that people might have access to that they may or may not know about. Oh yeah, I mean, as far as technical resources, my my freelance business is super simple. I have a free WordPress site. Uh, I use PayPal to invoice and collect payment instantly. Um, and I even use SoundCloud to post some, some uh, uh, portfolio stuff on the site. So technical stuff is all pretty much free. And I, I think people get focused too much on that. I, I have a whole course with students. That we, we teach them how to, to start a freelance business. And all the questions that I get from them are usually about like technical tools and strategies mm-hmm. for social media. And I, I, I really it's kind of sad because I feel like they're missing what really makes a difference. I think what makes a difference in your freelance business is not the tool or your social media strategy. It's... Um, like you were talking about with internships, go meet some real people and go make records for them. Start with your friends, do some records for free and ask for testimonials and use their, their music for portfolio building and and then basically have people refer you and get to know real human beings in your town. Even if your town is a town of 100 people, there's got to be in one other musician that wants something recorded. And then um, two, the attitude is all about... Um, adding value to people's lives and serving them. It's actually a lot of what the go-giver is about. Jay Abraham talks about being your client's trusted advisor. And I think about this with every client I have when that means I want, to, I want them to, to trust me to advise them on all things, even if that means advising them to work with somebody else other than me. Even if that mm-hmm. means saying, you know what, your music is so cool, but I'm not really the best for your genre, and I have a friend that's really good, or I have a, a competitor that's really good at mixing your genre, and I think your music would be in better hands with him. That, that embodies the trusted advisor mentality, and it might lose you a client in the short run, but it'll gain you respect and word-of-mouth referral forever because you actually care about their best interest more than you do about your own, and that can never go wrong. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then sometimes you just you know, you may not be able to help somebody out. You might just be booked. Yeah, being, absolutely. Being able to recommend great alternatives for people or, or help people with what they need is wonderful. Mm-hmm. All right. So that leads us to the final question here. Um, if you were dropped in a strange city and you could only take a simple setup for recording, what might you choose? How would you find people to record and how would you make ends meet right away while you were doing that so that you could continue to record? You know, an example would be, say somebody who's new, they moved to a Nashville or a New York or an LA or anywhere and they just want to get started. Wow. I love it. Um, first thing I would do is go get a job. (laughs) So good, you know, go to home Depot or go anywhere, get some money flowing so you can have a place to live and, and, and electricity that you can pay for so you can set up your gear. Um, Mm -hmm. and don't be ashamed of working all day and recording and mixing all night. Um, Second thing would be a gear. All I would need is a laptop, and I could get a, a cheap one off of eBay, three or four year old laptop, a two channel USB interface, maybe for a hundred bucks or something, uh, a, conden- a large diaphragm condenser, and a, a dynamic microphone. So maybe like a uh, you know a hundred dollar. Both both of them could be a hundred dollar mic, like a Shure SM57 mm-hmm. and a condenser, 
and whatever free software comes with the interface. What's a Shure SM57? I've never heard of that one. <laughs> yeah, it's this magical microphone that's very, very rare. They say you can hammer nails with it. Yes, so it doubles as a, as a hammer. And uh, yeah, I would just take a dynamic and a condenser and a two-channel interface and a laptop, and I, I would basically walk into venues. I would find a church to go to. I'm a church-going person, uh, so mm-hmm. I would get to know the people in the band there and tell them, hey, if you ever want to record... Or if you're if you're a musician, you want to do your own music. I record people. I would just meet people where music is happening, and tell them that I would record them for free, and uh, and then eventually record for free and then charge for mixing, or do a song for free and then charge for the rest of them, and eventually start getting my name out there in the community. But get to know the music scene, and uh, I can make a whole record with five hundred dollars setup. Yeah. I like your advice of just saying, you know, it's it's okay to go get work doing something else to support yourself while you get started in this. Because the music career, you know, the recording career is a slow process. It's a slow build. As they say, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And if you ever see somebody who looks like they're sprinting, you probably just didn't see the first 25 miles that they ran. <laughs> Bingo. Oh, absolutely. You know I, mean? I know if you want to sustain a career in music, you have to have money um, because you have to live. And when you don't have money, you become desperate and you do dumb things that are short-sighted and they're not in the best interest of the long-term goals that you have. So eliminate that you know, desperation. Get a job and swallow your pride and see it as a, a good and smart thing. And then you have the freedom and flexibility to pocket all the profit from your business to reinvest into more gear or business cards or a website or whatever you need. And then slowly but surely, you can take strategic risks without risking the whole bank, and uh, you can build a business out of this. All right. Last quick follow-up question to that. If somebody has figured out how to pay their bills, and they're doing the recording, and they can pick and choose what they want to do, do you have a tip for them as far as creating a little bit of a modicum of hunger in the music and the recording and, and goal setting, that sort of thing that will really propel you, and, and so you don't end up sort of becoming too complacent and, and not moving forward with your recordings? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think I believe if you're if you're at a point where you're bringing in an extra thousand to two thousand dollars a month on the side, recording and mixing, I think that alone will give you a taste, a hunger for. Man, what if I only did this? You know, what if I needed to replace three thousand a month in income, and I'm almost there, or whatever it is. You know, I mm-hmm. think when people start to see some real dollar signs come in, and it's just off of recording and mixing. That alone will propel them if they get a taste of what would it be like to have the flexibility to work for myself and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't think it's for everybody, too. I feel like not everybody actually wants to do this full time. They think they do, but they, uh, they actually would just enjoy the extra income and you know, they can fund their Roth IRA, do something responsible like that, or they can pay off debt, or they can just enjoy a vacation. Or, buy, or I just tell people, even if it pays for all your gear, you know? Mm-hmm. So that it, your your skill set is paying for your gear is is better than just paying for it yourself. You get other people yeah. to pay for it, you know, yeah, and leverage great. your skill set. So at the very least, I think people once they get some money coming in will figure out what it is they really want, and if they're hungry for it, they won't stop till they get it. And if they're not hungry for it, they're in the sweet spot already. Yeah, don't stop till you get enough. <laughs> I think that's great advice, though. Um, if nothing else, just having a self-propelling hobby, if you choose that that's what it means to you, where the money and the income you figure out how to earn in recording is also what pays for your recording equipment in your studio, that's a great motivator. So thank you for that tip. It'll make your wife happy, too. <laughs> Indeed. Well, um, thanks so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars, Graham. Again, it's a super honor to have you on the show here with us. Um, how can our rock stars find you and learn more about what you got going on and, and what, how can they follow you? Absolutely. Just go to the recording revolution.com. And, uh, honestly, if you want some of my best material, click the free tools button at the top. And I've got a whole video series and an ebook that I give away for free and it gets you on my list. And I actually, if you get on my list, I send you a ton of curated content of my best stuff and then a ton of exclusive stuff that's not posted anywhere else. Um, for recording and mixing, and it's probably my best material. So if that's what you want, it's all free. And it's all there at therecordingrevolution.com. Just look for free tools, and uh, that's probably. And then of course you can follow me on Twitter uh, at recordingrev or Facebook, or uh, I'm on YouTube. Just look for Recording Revolution. Awesome. Very generous of you to to create all that content for everybody. And you know, just a reminder: if you are that person who's starting out with your laptop and your two mics 
in a town and you're working at Pizza Hut and you want to make music, um, don't feel like you can't afford anything yet because Graham's created all this f- amazing resource for you and you just it won't cost you a penny. Just go check it out and start learning. Absolutely, man. Well, cool. Thanks so much, Graham. Um, really appreciate you being here on the show with us. And I can't wait to uh, to continue to learn more stuff from you and, and uh, just stay in touch. Likewise. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the resource you're putting out there, man. Pump for your podcast. Thanks, dude. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's R.S. Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.